Uh, what a great morning to, to worship and praise the Lord this morning. You know, as I was uh, <clears throat> preparing for this morning and uh, what the message was, I realized, you know, kids say some really funny things sometimes. My kids especially. For Father's Day last year, I got a mug that says, Warning, whatever you say could be used in a sermon. (laughs) I think it said pastor warning. I think that's what it it says, pastor warning. You know, kids say funny things sometimes, and and that's okay. Um, They say funny things that sometimes, if we're not careful, can be hurtful things. Like, you know, back in the olden days, in the 90s, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> 90s were not the olden days. That's relative. <laughs> but they'll say things like, back in the olden days, you didn't have this. And I'm like, no, we didn't, you know. Uh, <laughs> but today, as, as we think about communications, communications have come a long way. Today, we have ways to communicate that just keep multiplying, right? You have your telephone that is either wired on the wall or cordless. You have a cell phone. You have instant messaging. You have Facebook. And, and here's just a rude, uh, crude, excuse me, not rude, but crude. And maybe it's rude. I don't know. But it's a crude chart of different ways and not even all of them that communication can take place. You've got the radio, you've got email, you've got snail mail, you've got, uh, you know, text messaging, you've got uh, all sorts of different ways to communicate. But there was a day before the invention of email and even telephone where the primary way to send communications was through the mail. Did you know that according to World History Encyclopedia, the very first record of a postal service can be traced back to about 5th century B.C. So like 500 up to almost 600 B.C. Specifically with the Persian Empire, who the Persian Empire had established these horse routes and stopover points that were a day's ride apart. The network was paid for by the communities the routes passed through, supplying the riders with rations by the courier, showing the official sealed document of passage. And if you look here on the satchel, you can kind of see see what that might have looked like. This is obviously a a painting rendering of what that looked like. But the Persian Empire in 5th century BC created the first known postal service. In the Roman world... Around, from around the 3rd century B.C., so in the 300s B.C., there's a uh, notable increase, a marked increase of personal mail being sent to, to, you know, between acquaintances. They've got a plethora of uh, data available to show these personal letters. Now, in the 3rd century B.C., in the, in the Roman Empire, senders of a letter had to find their own means of sending the letter and getting it to the destination. Primarily, it would be through a trusted friend that they would pay to deliver the, hand-deliver the mail. Uh, or they would send their slaves to, to deliver the mail. 
Or another option would be trusted merchants that they would, you know, as the merchants would travel, they say, hey, you're going to such and such place. Okay, can you deliver this to so-and-so, uh, assuming that they trusted. And around the New Testament time of, you know, when we get into, you know, early when these letters are written, the 50s A.D., the Roman Empire actually did have an official uh, mail service. Uh, this is a carving of what it looked like, you know, a horse-drawn buggy. And, uh, you know, I kind of see, like, USPS there. I don't know. Um, but, you know, the, the, in the time of the New Testament, there was a Roman uh, postal service. However, this postal service was primarily used for, uh, like, Caesar's household, it was primarily used for the military. It was primarily used for those uh, of high influence would use this. So why they need this giant buggy, I don't know. But uh, it was very uncommon for just regular common folk to send letters through this particular mail service at this time. Which means that in the day of, of when Galatians was being written by Paul, it was most likely hand-delivered. In fact, uh, history, historians attest to the fact that these church letters were personally delivered by individuals who were sent. So last week, we covered the five W's, the who, what, when, where, why of the book of Galatians. Um, and if you missed that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. That's going to really help set the context for our study in Galatians but we see in verse 2 where Paul says, And all of the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. So it's, it's really likely that one of these brothers who were with Paul was charged with delivering the letter to the churches in Galatia. And we have to understand that in that day, that person, the courier with the letter, would have, would have had to travel However, and, and probably would have been paid for by Paul himself for all of his travel needs and everything to get where he needed to go. He would arrive at, at these churches, uh, the courier, and say, I have a letter from the Apostle Paul to read in front of you. And they would gather the church, all of the people in that, in that local church, and it would be publicly read. And then he would take it and he'd move on to the next church and he'd say, I've got a letter, and, the, and it would be publicly read. That is most likely the case of what took place here. That got me thinking, you know, my kids love getting our mail, especially Julian and Emma. They, they kind of make it a, a point that when we pull in the driveway, have you gotten the mail yet? No, and they like jump out of the car to see who can get to the mailbox first. All right? There's, I think there's this little glimmer of hope for them that there might be something. There might just be something with their name on it in our mailbox. There's this little excitement, right? What child doesn't like going to the mailbox and seeing something with their name on it? Right? I think we, I think we can relate to that. As adults, the excitement of getting the mail kind of wears off because usually what's coming in the mail are bills and nobody gets excited for those. But every once in a while... You go to the mailbox and you see a letter or a card or even a little package from someone you know and your heart kind of flutters a little bit. Go, ooh, I'm excited. I can't wait to open this. I imagine that might be kind of what the churches in Galatia feel when they hear that they've received a letter from the Apostle Paul. 
right? And so they, ooh, we got a, Paul wrote us, wrote to us, and so they gather in, in anticipation and excitement for what Paul has to say to them. And with that tension, let's pray, and we'll read how Paul opens his letter to the church, okay? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your word that we have before us. Lord, we, we also want to take a moment to just pause and, say, and breathe and say, here we are, Lord. Would you speak to us? Would you transform our hearts? Lord, my prayer, as it is with every week, is that this would not simply be information transfer, but rather would be an opportunity for your spirit to convict hearts where needed, to allow surrender to happen even further in one's life, to allow your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. So Lord, that's my prayer for all who are here and all who will listen later, that they wouldn't just hear, but they would listen and they would surrender to the truth of your word so that Jesus would be praised. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the church in Galatia receives news that Paul's written him a letter, and, I, and, and they're sitting there like, Ooh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Open the scroll. Let's read together. I'm going to read out of my English Standard Version. I'm going to start back at verse 1. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pause there because I imagine those hearing would be like, yes, this is awesome. And then we get to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I have to imagine receiving that, being like, whoa, what did we do? What happened? Why is he so mad? And, and to be certain, he is speaking a rebuke here. In fact, this, this is Paul's opening is a rebuke to the church. In fact, out of the 13 Pauline letters of the New Testament, nine of the 13, after the greeting, have some form of thankfulness and praise for the church. This one doesn't. This one has no praise and thankfulness for the church in Galatia. He is rebuking the church. He comes out and he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. This word astonished literally means amazed or marvel. Some of your translations, if you're not using the English Standard Version, might say, I'm amazed 
or I marvel that you are so quickly. It does mean those things. I kind of got the idea when I was looking this up, like uh, if you guys have ever seen Family Feud with Steve Harvey, you know, he has a great amazement look, right? When, when he gets an answer for one of, the, one of the questions, he's just like, you know, he just has this dumbfounded look. I think this is the idea that Paul's trying to convey. He's like, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's dumbfounded, right? He says, I'm astonished. This is a bewilderment. And he says that I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. Notice that, notice that he doesn't say that you're deserting the gospel. He says that you're deserting him, Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ. This word deserting means to transpose one thing with another thing. What came to my mind as I read this was Indiana Jones as he's transposing the golden idol with the bag of sand, right? That's literally what it means to transpose. And so, so the idea here was that the church in Galatia were, were transposing, they were exchanging Jesus for this new teaching that was coming into the church. They weren't modifying, they were exchanging it was something different. This word deserting also carries the idea to fall away from one thing for another thing. And so in his opening rebuke, he says, I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Jesus who called you in the grace of Christ. That you're so quickly exchanging Jesus for this new teaching. He continues and he says that you're turning from, to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In this, in this part of the verse here, there's at, he uses the word different and another, and he could have replaced another with the same word different, but he doesn't, and I'm going to explain why. So he could have written it to say, are turning to a different gospel, not that there is a different one but he doesn't. I'm going to explain why. The word for different is the Greek word eteros, which literally means one not of the same nature, form, class, or kind. I tried to come up with an illustration for this, and the first thing that popped into my mind was apples and oranges, but that doesn't work because they're both fruit. They're different fruit, but they're fruit. It would be more like an apple and a chair. Now, if you can make that connection and how that works, see me afterwards and explain that to me. But they're completely different things. An apple is not the same thing. It's not even the same kind. It's not even the same nature as a chair. That's what it means for different when he says a different gospel. And then he continues and he says, not that there is another one. This word for another is the Greek word alos, which means more of or others of the same kind. And so Paul is making it very, 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 very clear to the church in Galatia and to us, there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ. There's, there's nothing that even is on the same level. There's nothing that comes close. There's not another of the same kind of gospel. He 
He says that you're turning from a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some of you, or there are some who trouble you. This word trouble means to agitate. Uh, literally, like, like the agitator in a washing machine to turn you and twist you and jive you around. Not, well, I guess one of the older washing machines, the new ones don't have that agitator, much to our chagrin, right? But that, that old agitator, think about how it would agitate the clothes, right? That's the trouble that it's talking about. It, and also, it takes away one's calmness of mind, which causes doubt. That's the trouble that Paul is talking about. And we have to remember from last week, for those of you who are here, what is the issue? The issue is, is that the Judaizers were coming in and preaching a different gospel that they needed, that it wasn't just Jesus alone, it wasn't just justific- justification by faith alone, but they also had to come under Judaism, that they had to add things to the gospel. And they were causing trouble, they were causing doubt in the believers' minds. The, the word distort here has the idea of transmuting or corrupting or perverting the gospel. He said that, look, there's, there are some among you who are trying to, to take away your calmness of mind, who are trying to cause doubt and confusion and want to transmute or corrupt the gospel of Jesus. He's calling the the attention to the church to say, wake up, cling to what was taught. See, because what's happening is that they were turning, here's the problem, that the Judaizers were turning the church away from Jesus and to another kind of news that wasn't even in the same category. Remember, gospel means good news. And so Paul says, there is no other good news than Jesus. There is no other good news. There's not even anything in the same category. But these Judaizers were coming in and and they were influencing the church and they were taking the doubt away and the security that they had in the gospel of Jesus and they were taking away from Jesus and taking them to a new kind of news that had nothing good about it. My friends, there is no other gospel than that of Jesus Christ. None. Nothing comes close. There is nothing even remotely close. He continues on and he says, But even if we, verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This word for accursed literally means cursed. Literally means to be devoted to the direst of woes. This is very strong language. I hope you see that. Paul is is really trying to make a point to wake up the church in Galatia. It says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now, there is a point in, uh, that I'd like to pull out in this very truth of this verse. This verse alone speaks very strongly against faiths today, such as Mormonism, 
which is supposedly based on a revelation from an angel that teaches a different gospel than justification by faith alone in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The Mormon faith was literally begun with the supposed revelation from an angel to John Smith about a different gospel. Paul here says, even if an angel from heaven were to preach a different gospel, let him be accursed. This is strong language. He doubles down and he says, as we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, we need to keep the context in this verse here in verse 9. Because taken out of context, if, if you took this one verse out of context, you could take the posture of, that's not the gospel I received, so curse you. That's not what Paul is saying here. It, it says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, right? The, taking it out of context and abusing it could take the posture of, of hearing the gospel presented and going, well, that's not what I was taught, so curse you. Like, no. That's not the instruction here. Keep it in the context and remember that Paul was literally the one who gave the gospel to the church in Galatia. He's saying, if anyone comes preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from me, the one that you received in my presence, the one that, that came from Jesus Christ himself through me, let them be accursed. The gospel of Jesus is salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone. The death and resurrection of Jesus satisfied God's wrath on sinners who willfully repent of their sinfulness and willfully choose Jesus to be their Savior and King. And that's the good news. Jesus himself said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel, my friends, is all about Jesus and only about Jesus. Paul is making a very strong statement to the church that's being influenced by these false teachers that there is only one true gospel. There is only one truth. Only Jesus saves. Remember, in the context that he's writing, the Judaizers were saying, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but that alone won't save you. You have to also be circumcised, and you also have to come under the Jewish laws and under the Jewish faith. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is that salvation comes from Jesus alone. He's rebuking that teaching. So where does that leave the church today? Well, with the same truth, that there's only one gospel. The problem is, is that the gospel of Jesus is such good news that fallen sinners like us can't accept it for what it is. We struggle with it. We feel guilty about receiving grace. We feel guilty about receiving a salvation without us having any part to play in it. 
almost like, you know, it's too good of a deal for Jesus to do everything and us do nothing but surrender. So we try to make sense of it. And by, by trying to make sense of it and trying to work it out and, 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 and trying to look at all these other doctrines and teachings, we burden the gospel with things like legalism or liberalism or Calvinism or Arminianism, dispensationalism, covenantalism. All of these things we add on to the gospel and burden what the truth is, is that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone through repentance and faith. And that's it. That's the good news. We like to complicate it, but that's the good news. Anything other than that is not good news. Listen, if our obedience, if your obedience has bearing on your salvation, it's the wrong gospel. If your appearance has bearing on your salvation, you have the wrong gospel. If your gospel says that Jesus is a way but not the way, you have the wrong gospel. If your gospel tells you Jesus is the means to health and wealth and prosperity, you have the wrong gospel. If your gospel says that Jesus is enough to save you but not enough to keep you, you have the wrong gospel. Anything other than Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, and offering the free gift of salvation to all who repent and believe is not the gospel. It's not good news. The good news is that while we were sinners, rebels to God's throne and deserving death, Jesus, the Son of God, left his throne in heaven to be born as a baby. He lived a completely sinless life. He was wrongly accused and sentenced to death on a cross where he bore the weight of sin for the world, for all of mankind, once and for all time. He was the final sacrificial lamb. He was buried in a tomb and three days later rose again victorious over death and sin. His death pays the penalty in full for sinful mankind and made the only way for man to be reconciled for God for our treason against our king. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus says, repent, which means to make up our mind. That Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's a compound Greek word. Meta meaning metamorphosis. Noia, we don't have an English word for it that, in, that, that specifically like, addresses it, so you have to kind of tease it out in a, in a phrase. So meta means transformation or being transformed. Noia is the way you think, making up your mind, uh, the, the way you think about something, maybe even what you believe about something, your conviction specifically after spending time with. So metanoia is being transformed by making up your mind by spending time with Jesus. That's repentance. And Jesus says in, in Mark 1.15, we are to, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. He hasn't even died yet. He hasn't even started his ministry yet. He says there is good news because the king is here. Repent and believe the gospel. 
The gospel is all about Jesus and nothing else. Once we sinners, we, including myself, understand the salvation comes in Jesus alone and we surrender our life to his lordship and kingship through repentant faith, we are saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. We are permanently changed by Jesus. This is what it means to be born again. You have been created new. Jesus sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit as we progressively grow in our obedience. See, there is a, a school of thought that takes this idea of, you know, just say yes to Jesus and everything's good and you've got your ticket. That there is an obedience that comes out of being transformed. But it's not a requirement to be saved. The obedience isn't a requirement. The requirement is surrender to Jesus. Jesus does the rest. Jesus convicts the heart. Jesus commands us to obey. You cannot surrender your life to Jesus and stay the same. He won't let you. <laughs> if you have surrendered your life to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he will not let you stay the way you were. He will not let you stay in your sin. He changes you. We are permanently changed by Jesus. Jesus sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit. And one day, when Jesus comes back or calls us home, he will finish the transformation in all believers' lives. And that, my friends, is the good news. And the best part about it, all you have to do is surrender. That's it. He's, he does everything else. It's all about Jesus. Because only Jesus can change hearts. Only Jesus can change our thinking. Only Jesus can change our behavior. Only Jesus can transform our life. We can't do it. We can't. And the good news is that he's never asked us to. He came in our rebellious state and said, follow me. I'll make you fishers. I will change you. I will do this if you'll just say yes and follow me. We're going to close in prayer and have a closing song. Lord, I just, I know that there might have been pieces of this message that you've given me to proclaim this morning that might have rubbed people the wrong way. Lord, I pray that they would seek your word, that they would seek you, and that they would see that the, the, the gospel of Jesus is that you are the good news and you alone. That salvation comes by no man, by no name must we be saved, but by Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters this morning who have, have come to worship you this morning. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would take the, the truth of the word this morning and you would transform our hearts. That you would call us to obedience. That you would call us to surrender. That you would call us to be the church you've called us to be. To live missionally, on mission for you. Because there is a world around us that is dying and will never be in your presence. The world around us says that we get to be king and that we can make our life better and that we can transform our lives if we just put in the hard work. Rubbish. Jesus, only you can change lives. So Lord, I pray for all who are here, my brothers and sisters, and all who will hear later, Lord, that they would surrender even in this moment to your lordship and your kingship and that they would be transformed by you because only you can do it. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.